people uh, supposedly screen the spine when they have an extremity patient, um, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of data to tell people, uh, is that a frequent thing that people coming with extremity pain where it's coming from the, supposedly come from the spine? Is it a, is it a rare thing? Uh, what's the kind of prevalence like? So that was the first question was about sort of prevalence of this situation where somebody comes in with isolated extremity pain, they're convinced it's coming from the extremity or their physician is. And this was kind of one of the, one of the inclusion criteria. Welcome to PT ProTac Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Richard Rosedale will talk about extremity pain of spinal sores and its indicators. Richard recently published two papers on the topic, and he will discuss them and their results. Richard has been a PT since 1992, completed his diploma in MDT in 1997, and since 2003, Richard has been a member of the McKenzie Institute teaching faculty. In 2018, Richard was appointed as the International Director of Education and the Diploma Coordinator for the McKenzie Institute International. I hope you enjoy the show. PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Hi, Richard. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? Hello, Mariana. I'm good today. Thank you. Awesome. So I'm excited to talk about the last two papers you published on spinal extremity differentiation. So before we jump right in, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your career. How did you get to where you are right now? Okay. So I'm a physiotherapist from just outside London, Ontario. Uh, I've been a physio for nearly 30 years. I trained in England at Guy's Hospital, and uh, soon after which I emigrated to Canada. I started uh, training in the McKenzie system, and uh, that became my kind of focus, clinical focus, and eventually my research focus. And uh, I came on through the system and uh, started teaching, and uh, more recently became the director of education for the McKenzie Institute. Uh, so I'm still a practicing clinician. Um, I am director of education. I have been involved in research now for over, over a decade. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's it, I guess. And here I am. The Shar version. That's the short version, yes. <laughs> for listeners. So let's talk about the last two papers that you just published. So would you tell us a little bit about the EXPO study and its findings? Yeah, so this was a study which um, in my mind was kind of a long time time coming. So um, people uh, supposedly screen the spine when they have an extremity patient, um, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of data to tell people uh, is that a frequent thing that people coming with extremity pain where it's coming from the supposedly come from the spine is it a, is it a rare thing uh, what's the kind of prevalence like so that was the first question was about sort of prevalence of this situation where somebody comes in with isolated extremity pain they're convinced it's coming from the extremity or their physician is and this was kind of one of the one of the inclusion criteria um, so they come in with this pain and uh, we use as 
you know, practitioners using uh, the McKenzie method, we go through a systematic way to sort of screen the spine. And um, if the patient patient symptoms change as we move the spine around, and then we move on and, and look at the spine and, and, and treat the spine. If things don't change, then we basically go on and treat the extremity. So we wanted to find out, you know, when you look at the knee or the ankle or the elbow or the shoulder, you know, what sort of percentage of patients are we, are we looking at here? Because we could, we could all recall, oh, I remember that great patient I saw, you know, a month ago and she came in with elbow pain and we moved her neck around, she got better. How commonly does that happen? And we have this recall bias, of course, where we think it happens very, very commonly, but we're not really sure because we don't sort of keep the data. So we had um, two centers in Canada, one in the US and one in New Zealand. Uh, so four clinicians. Uh, consecutive patients coming in with isolated extremity pain that were recruited, and then we went through the the MDT process of screening those patients for to see if the problem was coming from the, the spine, from the thoracic spine, or from the, the lumbar spine. If we found they were coming, the 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 problem was changes we moved the spine around, then they were treated by just by doing repeated movements with the spine. Uh, if not, then they were, were classified and, and treated uh, as an extremity. And then we followed those patients. We, we did compare the groups, not that it was a, a, a that wasn't the main purpose, but we were comparing the groups really to, to give some verification for the fact that this, you know, if this was really a, a problem coming from the spine, then we would expect it to be at least as good as in terms of outcome, uh, those that where we treated the extremity. If we'd completely got it wrong, then we wouldn't expect a good outcome if we were treating the spine. And it was an extremity problem we would expect a poor outcome so we wanted to do that comparison just to kind of verify that we were likely sort of on track in terms of our finding the, the options so that was the basic yeah i think that's very interesting because i think most times it's kind of intuitive that we go and screen the spine to clear the spine first but i don't think there there were any systematic studies or anything that would give us the numbers. So I think it was quite surprising, the numbers. Yeah, the numbers were surprising, yeah. Yeah, so that, will, that will, was going to be my next question. Were the numbers on that study surprising and were the results similar to what you see in clinical practice? I think um, for some of the results, it was quite uh, similar to what we expected, but, but for some of the others in different uh, areas, um, of the extremity, it was a little bit more than we than we actually expected. So it was quite interesting to uh, to see those numbers coming, especially for someone like the hip. Uh, you know, seventy percent um, appeared to be influenced and treated with 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 spinal movements, and that was regardless of the location. So we expected to have more patients with kind of buttock pain um, to be from the spine. A uh, little less with maybe lateral pain and less with uh, more groin pain. But the three were fairly equal when we actually broke that down. That's not in the study, but when we looked at those different locations, it was fairly equal. So that was kind of interesting uh, too. I think we expect, most people would expect the shoulder to be higher in terms of close to 50%. Um, maybe some people expected the knee to be higher. It came out like 25%. And maybe people thought, oh, I expected more knee patients to, to be, be referred. But uh, this was knee patients without the obvious kind of referral down the back of the thigh and, and, and accompanying pain, which, which you know, is more obviously spine. These weren't patients that were obviously 
spinal. Like, for example, the shoulder ones didn't have, you know, pain in their upper traps as well or the scapular pain as well, which would have been too obvious. It was isolated kind of instrument. Pain. So, yeah, so some of the results kind of were a little bit surprising. Uh, um, some of them, I, you know, I talked to people afterwards and some exchanges afterwards and some people said, oh, yeah, that's kind of what we what we expected. It kind of verified what we what we thought. But there's no doubt it needed to be verified because you can only go around so long and say, oh, yes, you know, we see lots of experimental patients with a problem. We treat the spine, they get better. But do we really? I mean, uh, you know, what are the proportions? So we needed to sort of document that. And this was the first stage of, of doing that. And hopefully it's not the last, uh, um, you know, time it's, it's done. This was to, just to put that information out there and hopefully people will see it and say, oh, okay, that's interesting. Let's see if we can uh, replicate that. Uh, either using you know the, the McKinsey approach or using another approach to see if the numbers are the same. I I thought that the arm and forearm the number was really high, eighty eighty three percent. So yeah. I mean I think that's kind of expected, but it's just uh, nice to see like the 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 eighty three percent. That's like a huge number. That's fine. So yeah, between the joints, both in the upper and lower extremity. The numbers were high like uh, uh, so that's a good clue for people if pay, people are coming in with pain between joints uh, mm -hmm. really we should we should sort of suspect the, the spines the same thing with the tie and leg that was 72 percent that also a, a high number mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's again that's probably not that unexpected people come in with yeah in their hamstring and uh, most Clinicians that are keyed in would think, ah, let's let's really check out the lung spine. I I mean, I think the message for, from this uh, sort of going back to the previous point of saying this is something we, you know, we, we do day in and day out is you know that that message that do we do it properly and do we do it adequately and even with this you know study have we done it adequately? Uh, you know, what is a good screening of the spine? How can we say we've ruled out the spine? And uh, so this is what we want to start a kind of conversation on and get people kind of thinking about because it's some, something people do day in and day out many times a day, but really with lots of assumptions uh, on that. Oh, yes, you know, patients, then their neck is moving well, it's not coming from the neck. Or they've got no concurrent neck pain or they haven't had a history of neck pain and so it's that's not a problem. But uh, are we sure about that? Yes. And... In your opinion, is the screening of the spine in the presence of extremity pain a normal practice between PTs? Um, I, I think if you ask most uh, PTs, um, chiropractors, they would say, yes, of course we screen the spine. The question is how do they screen the spine? And, uh, you know, do, do we have any consensus on what is, a, what is an appropriate level of, of screening? And I think if you look, um, so if you look in the research and look at some of the criteria for some extremity studies in terms of, okay, we, we kind of screened the spine, how did they do it? They might have looked at range of motion loss. Um, they might have asked if they, you know, they have concurrent pain. Sometimes they may have gone in there and sort of mobilized, done some manual therapy on the spine, and there's no change on the extremity. I think it's not uncommon for people to kind of take an extremity baseline, do something to the spine, and then recheck the baseline. Again, it's just... You know how thoroughly do you do, you do that? Uh, is is the question? And have a way of doing that systematically. Like I know the McKenzie has a very systematic way of assessment. So then, 
how about the other techniques that the PTs use? Because I think it's really hard to have the same yeah. standard of screening. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, that's right. I mean, maybe uh, uh, other approaches, you know, do do that in a, in a really systematic way as well. And I say it would be nice if they went ahead and kind of tested that and see if they came up with the same kind of, kind of numbers. Um, but I, th I think... Um, I mean, I think many of us have come a, a long way with this, you know, uh, sort of over the years. And, um, you know, the problem is it's kind of patient presents with this kind of, it seems so obvious that it's an extremity problem. You know, their, their pain is very isolated. Then maybe they're restricted in their extremity movement. Functionally, they get pain when they move and do stuff with extremity. And so with that kind of scenario, it's like, ah, oh, it can't be a spine. It just can't be a spine. Uh, you know, it must be the extremity. So the, the screening is often very quick, I think. And uh, so that's kind of the, the, the problem. It's that, okay, you know, it's that uh, a recognition of, yes, you know, it looks like an extremity, but really is it the case? And what's the appropriate screening to make, make sure? Yeah, because as you were saying, for example, the knee, that was 25%. The pain was very isolated on the knee. So still one in each four is coming from the spine. Is it still a big number that's worth checking, mm -hmm. even that you don't have any other clues saying, at first at least, that it's coming from the spine. It looks like the knee. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to identify these factors, right? Yeah, it is. And the, and the selling point of it is, look, if it is the spine uh, for our study, uh, you know, Nearly all those that, that, that it was coming from the spine had a directional preference. So if it is a spine, the implications are the patients can do an exercise themselves, going to probably turn this problem around quite quickly. And that's kind of what was shown with, with, with the outcome. So that's kind of the selling thing. Even if it's just a quarter of the patients, like in the knee, it's worth just just getting those, capturing those quarter because their, their response is going to be quite quick. The solution is going to be simple and the patient is going to be able to do it primarily by, by themselves with, with simple exercises. So um, you know, if, if those patients are there uh, with that problem, then it's surely worth spending a little bit of time uh, checking that possibility out. Absolutely. And then you just published another study now in January 2022 that is exploring indicators of extremity pain of spine SARS, spinal SARS as identified by MDT. So why were the indicators found? Yes, so we within that same study, we also looked at uh, um, potentially what factors were associated with those uh, problems that were ultimately seen seemed to be coming from the spine and, and, and treated with um, spinal intervention. So we kind of um, put some you know various factors down, and then they were they were analysed, and the and the association was uh, was looked at. So. Um, so then we found that uh, we had a couple of indicators from the history and sort of three indicators from the examination. So kind of five indicators statistically seemed to come out uh, that were worth taking note of. So the two from the history were presence of paresthesia, which maybe is, is an obvious one, uh, but also from the better worse section or ag aggravating sort of easing section, you know, were the symptoms affected by uh, bending of the spine? Uh, turning of the spine uh, when somebody was just still um, or when they were just just sitting. So were they affected, were the symptoms affected by that from the history? So you've got those two, two factors from the history. 
then from the examination you have were the symptoms influenced when they changed their sitting posture from a sort of slouch position to an erect position and kind of back again. Um, was there a restriction of spinal movement? And was there no restriction of extremity movement? So those were kind of the, the five factors. And from that, if two were positive, um, two indicators were positive that had fairly good values in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Uh, I mean, better on the specificity front. So if two or more were positive, it was looking pretty pretty likely that may be the spine and that may give people, because um, obviously that's before the repeated movement section uh, of our examination. So that might give people some more incentive to kind of really search uh, the spine a little bit more if it wasn't obvious and as soon as we started moving around, there wasn't directional preference. Because if you have those factors, many of those people are obviously going to show changes quite quickly when you move the spine around in that repeated movement section of the examination. But if they didn't, then it'd be worth exploring that, taking your time to explore that more, because there will be a higher chance that that would be So we felt that uh, people did need a little bit more guidance. Uh, just, you know, it's one thing knowing that the prevalence is quite high, but it's another thing saying, well, how much time do I spend on this? Do I spend two minutes? Do I spend you know, the next first two sessions checking out the spine. So this gives people a little bit of guidance in terms of, okay, there are no, you know, indicators from the from the history or exam. You know, I can be fairly cursory with the spine or no, there are a significant number. We really need to be very thorough here because this is looking like a spinal problem. And then that gives people guidance in terms of how much time to spend on exploring end range uh, of the lumbar spine and, and the spinal thoracic do we just do extension? Do we do extension flexion? Do we do lateral? Do we add over pressure? Um, and so on and so forth. So hopefully that's helpful for people going, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. To give it more efficient. So you already know you had some clues on the, the history taking. So you already know that you should um, take some time doing the, the, the physical exam and, and going from there. So I think that's very helpful and and then how can we make these better known by other PTs uh, because it's so important right to um, spread the word about the high incidence of ex extremity pain from spinal sores we learned so many techniques in college and not as much about clinical reasoning so how can we bring this information to other healthcare providers and make screening of the spine a routine procedure in the presence of extremity pain, especially when you have these indicators that you just talked mm -hmm. about that you found on the, the last paper? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is one way by, by talking about it and sort of getting the word out there um, and on, you know, uh, you know, social media as well, people talking about it and, and, and circulating. Um, about the study but of course obviously the first step is to get the studies published which have which have been published and you hope people you know read the journals and read the articles i think the problem is once people think that an article is about the mckenzie method um especially if that's in the title and uh, for the second paper we kind of resisted that being in the title but we, we had to put it in there in the end um some people will automatically not, not read that study. Um, and so then that really limits uh, people that are exposed to that information. And so, yes, it's great for, for people already engaged uh, with the McKenzie system. They read the study and they it kind of 
you know, supports what they already thought and they have this extra bit of information which they can use and that's that's great. But getting the word out there to non McKenzie clinicians is is a challenge and uh ultimately um you know we, we can try the best we can but we can't force people to, to take this on board we can't force people to read the studies so um you know i don't know if you know hopefully again there are people out there that will read it researchers out there that will read it clinicians that will say ah yeah that's interesting they may not put any credibility to it because it's associated with the mckenzie method but they may say okay well this is worth exploring in terms of our approach and uh, let's let's do this you know study uh, from a you know manual therapy perspective or, or whatever just to see what the numbers are and that will be really interesting because I do feel I mean obviously it's about the patient what it comes down to so there are extremity patients people with extremity pain out there that get treated their extremity gets treated and that's not perhaps going to get as good outcome as if their spine was treated if that's where the problem is uh, seen to be coming from so you know it's it's about getting sort of good outcomes for the, for the patient and if we can spread the word and get other people to think about this then i think it's, it's but i mean the other thing is just to think about it um you know you're a clinician you've been out there for for 20 years and you've been treating all sorts of spinal extremity patients you know you've got in the mode of feeling pretty confident about screening the spine uh, and you may just be convinced that just looking at range of motion uh, or asking about the spinal history is, is is enough and so when you take this on board this new information it's kind of telling well you know maybe there was a few patients you missed out there over the last 20 years a few you know hundreds of patients you missed out there and you were treating their extremities you couldn't get the you know that problem better uh because that wasn't where the, where the what needed to be treated and so that also takes a bit of humility to go back and say ah yeah you know now now i know that uh, i have to you know be a little bit more thorough with this but in terms of yeah i think it's uh if anyone's got any ideas it's it's a real dilemma you put the papers out there you put them you know in in journals which you assume you know many clinicians look at and, and but uh, I don't know how you get people to change their practice. We know that you know any research takes a long time for practice to change. So uh, our expectations are uh, quite low. <laughs> you do what you can. <laughs> no, no, I'm sad to hear that. But um, because paresthesia is something that's very common, and most people relate to spinal sars. But the other um, indicators i think they were very interesting because it's involved involves position um seating turning spine bending the spine and and having that related with extremity pain because i remember i i used to do a lot of manual therapy um in brazil i could do osteopathic that we don't we can do in the u.s i'm not sure in canada but so I used to do a lot of manual therapy and I don't remember never being mentioned about positioning affecting symptoms, distal symptoms. So I think that's a very different like reasoning, clinical reasoning that's very um, interesting and very related to the extremity pain. So it would be great if other clinicians um, would be able to put that in their assessment as well and just check and 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 it's not something that mdt is just mdt exclusive it's something super simple that it could be included in other 
other techniques or methods like uh, assessment farms and, and be checked for PTs. But I think the problem is, um, I, don't, I don't remember seeing that before I started uh, doing the, the McKinsey courses. Yeah, I mean, I think to the first point, it is something that uh, is easily integrated into anyone's assessment. I mean, the presence of parasites in the history, everyone would ask about that. Everyone would yeah. look at restriction of spinal movement. Everyone would look at, you know, the extremity and see if there's a restriction of spinal movement. So you've got three things that everybody does. Okay? Yeah. And you've got the, the questions in the better, worse section, which, you know, some people may touch on if they're not. MDT clinicians, um, but it takes another few, you know, another minute to ask about those things. The one thing I think is is a little bit uh, foreign to people not using the McKinsey method is, you know, does the extremity pain change as somebody changes their posture, which is in fact a dead easy thing to do. It takes like 30 seconds to a minute to do it, and gain can really easily be integrated into anyone's uh, exam. So, um, you know, again, we 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 try to look at this as not a uh, a paper which just has implications for MDT clinicians, but should uh, should have implications for uh, everybody out there. We just need to get the word out, and uh, people should you know try to integrate these things and uh, see what they see what they find. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, it would be interesting if people would start using that in, in, in their daily practice. And as you said, then compare with their techniques, because if they find that it's uh, coming from the spine, whatever they are doing, is that affecting and improving the distal symptoms? That would be other thing that would be very interesting to find out. Yeah. yeah the other thing which um, it was kind of interesting about the um, what we found with the patients is that uh, we didn't find people had one pain and two sources. So if somebody came in with elbow pain, it was either going to be their elbow or it was going to be coming from their spinal thoracic spine. It wouldn't be, uh, it's a little bit of influence of, 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 the, of the neck and then the rest is, uh, is coming from the elbow. People can have two separate problems they did in the study. So we had 369 patients in the study. Some people had separate problems. So you move the neck around, the neck felt better, moved better, uh, but the elbow didn't change. Uh, so there, there were two separate things and they were categorized for their extremity pains and extremity problem. But we didn't see patients where we started to move their spine around. They were like 30% better, 50% better in the elbow. And then the rest of the problem was an elbow problem. And I think this is another kind of thought out there, which perhaps you know, interferes with people being thorough with the spine. They may start to do, to move the spine around, exercise the spine, manual therapy on the spine, and find there's some change. And then they also concurrently, you know, move on and treat the elbow, the extremity at the same time, or give up on the spine and then move on to the elbow. And from our study, it looks like that, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. You know, if you're going to get that sort of change, you're convinced, you've got your baselines and you get that change, uh, and the change is convincing to you and to the patient, then you should plow on and uh, because really you're probably going to get you know good good resolution just with treating uh, the spine for extremity and you shouldn't have to treat the extremity problem as well. So it's we didn't get the sense that it was this uh, oh you have to treat you know the spine and you have to treat the extremity and you have to treat everything in between. Uh, so life can be much simpler than than, than that. 
Yes, and I think sometimes can be confusing. We we don't find the full resolution of the symptoms. Just doing spine sometimes is tempting to go to the, the extremity to see if you can yeah. get a better result. The other thing you have to take into account is, of course, the, the, the patient and their sort of expectations and their outlook and that kind of attitude as well. So you obviously have to... Uh, um, you know, be communicating well with the patient, explaining exactly what you're doing, sort of bringing, bringing them along with you. Sometimes you get the sense that they're getting, you know, you, you're looking at the spine and they're coming with their, I'll use the elbow again, their elbow problem, and uh, you're getting the sense they're getting a little bit fed up uh, um, because, you know, they're not convinced at all. And so that may be the time you say, okay, let's check out your elbow and we'll start to – and. You know, so maybe you move on and maybe you do find a response in the elbow and, and, and you sort of quickly move to that and the patient's kind of guided you there. But I think we have to be aware of um, other factors um, and central to which is, is, is the patient and their uh, response, attitude, expectations. And we have to be continually communicating with the patient and bring them along uh, with us. If we can get that dramatic change in the first session and we move their neck around and their elbow feeling significantly better, then most patients are totally bought in right from the start. But if we can't, if we're getting this sort of subtle change, we need to explain exactly what we're doing to the patient, why we're doing what we're doing. Otherwise, they're just not going to, they're probably not going to come back again. Um, their expectations are not going to be met. Their expectations come to see you as you're going to treat their elbow. Um, if you don't touch their elbow and move their elbow around other than getting baselines, uh, they're not satisfied so you need to keep that into take that into account as as, as well um, and and the other thing of course is um, we're never just treating a body part you know we're always thinking about you know the other aspects which influence patients experience in terms of uh, pain and can obviously influence their, their outcome as well so we need to take all those things into account and I know in a study where we're talking about body parts we're talking about you know is it an extremity or is it the spine um, people assume that we're not taking into account all these other factors which can influence uh, the patient's Obviously, taking those things as well. Yeah. And I'm just curious to ask you one more thing about the study, that the results on the patients that had extremity pain coming from the spine were better than the ones that were just coming from the spine. So... Uh, we know that is because probably they had a higher incidence of derangements on the spine, right? And and then on the extremities, why why did you think that the results were not as quick because you didn't have as many derangements or it wasn't just responding yes. as quickly? So so yes, generally uh, um, that uh, the spinal patients were by far dominated by you know with having a direction preference and that would be you know if we break down we know from other studies prevalence wise on average we, we see about 40 percent of extremity uh, problems being um derangements and then we've got a whole mix of other stuff in there that is he's not going to respond so quickly um mm -hmm. like you know contractile dysfunction for example is going to be a much slower kind of steady response so we're comparing a group of, of people with with you know, nearly all of them had directional preference compared to another group, which, you know, maybe half of that, you know, up to half of them had directional preference and then you had a whole mix of other things. So it's not a fair comparison in that way. Mm -hmm. But as I say, it was done just to give kind of credibility in a way to say, okay, you know, if, if we'd have done that comparison and found the extremity patients did a whole lot better than the spinal ones, then we're really questioning 
did we really get that right? You know, were these really uh, a group of patients where the problems coming from? From this point, so you know, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. It wasn't a fair comparison. Um, so hopefully, again, you know, in another type of study, um, you know, there could be some randomization involved, and you could have a much kind of fairer com comparison and. Uh, to be really clear about uh, whether um, the patient des patients designated as a spinal uh, problem did really get, get better than those that were designated as a discrepancy problem. So we'd need another study design. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And let's transition to our final questions. Before we do that, do you want to mention anything else about the papers? Oh, um, I think uh, that really they, they speak for themselves. They're fairly, I mean, I would obviously encourage people to read the papers. They're fairly simple sort of studies, papers to read. And, uh, but the, there are some sort of, you know, details which are uh, important. And I think probably the most important thing to know is that uh, yeah, these, are the, these are the first studies which have been done on, on this area and so um it's not sort of, it, it's not cut in stone that this is these are the prevalences and these are the indicators so you know it's a starting point it's something for us to kind of say okay you know if you're a clinician and and you're you're finding that 50 percent of your shoulders are uh seem to be spawned then maybe that's good because it tells you okay that's kind of aligned with what the study said so that's that's kind of helpful uh, but, you know, if you find that only 25% of your shoulders, maybe it's because of your setting. You know, you're in a different setting from the setting we were in as clinicians doing the, 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 the study. Maybe there are other reasons as, as, as well. So if this is replicated in different settings uh, with different populations, with different clinicians, then we get a better idea. So I, it's just really a sort of, uh, yeah, this is, I th of course, I'm enthusiastic about it, and I think people should take note of these studies. But um, just a precautionary sort of note that uh, these are not definitive yet, and, and hopefully they're the starting point for us to become more definitive. Absolutely. Let's hope that another ones are going to come after that one. And what is your favorite resource of information? Do you have any books or specific papers, studies that you like? So what I've been doing uh, for a couple of decades is uh, I've been noting down about, I mean, it's built up. So some of the main journals that published uh, research that sort of would be relevant and interesting to us. So I, I, I kind of note down the journals and I check every new edition uh, of those journals. So that's my main kind of source of kind of input in terms of, What's happening in, in, in the research, and that kind of keeps keeps me up to date. I mean, more recently, I probably, you know, I'm on social media a little bit, so Twitter, and there are articles which circulate on those, and people give links, and that's really good because sometimes it's in journals. I mean, you can't search all the journals, so sometimes, uh, uh, you know, you get the odd article in a, in a, a journal which doesn't normally publish perhaps uh, so many relevant articles for us, and so that can be. Uh, drawn from that and uh, so that's really helpful as, as well but I, I think my approach over the years has been quite systematic and and checking you know these regular journals you know every month or how you know three or four times a year however much they published and then checking through all the articles 
and then accessing those articles that are that are relevant and, and put them in your own kind of library. Um, so if something comes up like you know uh, a different condition or a, a, a test or a, a problem that you haven't seen before, then you can access your own library and, and kind of check through the articles. Or if there's some discussion comes up, you can you know check back through the articles you uh, you know stored over the over the years. So that's what I've done over the years, and uh, you know, I think it's it's been useful for me to keep abreast of uh, what's happening in terms of the, the literature, and uh, I would recommend it as something people should do. Just I just have a little card, and I just tick off literally, just because I've always done that. I mean, I guess I should put it on my computer, but uh, I just tick off a little card every month. You know, this journal I've checked. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And what would be the best advice you give to the clinicians that are starting their careers? Oh, to do that, <laughs> to get a little <laughs> and to write down <laughs> and stick on the <laughs> So, um, I mean, that would be one thing in terms of, but that's not all about keeping up to, to, to date with the literature. So, uh, I mean, uh, advice would be to, um, I mean, the challenge is there are so many different philosophies and approaches to musculoskeletal care. As a student coming out, you're trying to kind of uh, understand these different approaches. You're trying to sort of weigh them up and you're trying to make a decision in terms of, you know, which way to go in terms of your, your practice. And that's really challenging. My preference is people should, should do that, should try to understand different approaches, different philosophies. Um, and at some point, they should make a decision about which kind of approach they want to use. And, and then they should put their efforts, invest their time and energy into that approach and be good at that, that particular approach. Now, um, depending on the sort of the, the culture of, of sort of clinical practice where people are, sometimes that's, that's difficult. Many uh, cultures, everyone mixes everything together. And they do a little bit of everything, and uh, that's kind of tough to really then evaluate what you're doing um, in terms of your your, your patients. If the patients get better, you're not really sure what you did uh, uh, that helped them because you've done a little bit of manual therapy, you've done some modalities, you've given them some stretches, uh, you made you know you did some exercises, you know what helped. And so for your own kind of learning, I think it's it's also good to be kind of quite selective in terms of what you. What you give to people, so you're able to to evaluate that. And then, obviously, you're doing that in conjunction with, uh, um, you know, drawing from the literature, uh, um, and you know, deciding which is the best way way forward. But I think at some point, my feeling is that uh, you know, because I needed some structure and some framework uh, to work within, you know, people that need that, I think should should look at uh, uh, approaches that provide that. If people can get by with doing lots of different things, if they feel satisfied with that, they feel the patients, um, you know, appreciate that, get better with that, and it's in concordance with the evidence, then, you know, obviously that's a personal choice. But uh, I feel as though that people should, should weigh up these different approaches and uh, decide kind of which which, which way they're going to go with that. It's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I agree because then you do a lot of different things and you don't even know what is the one that is really helping and that you should focus on instead of giving 15 exercises, homework, like usually they do in traditional PT clinics. It is overwhelming. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, people need to be critical as well, of course, of different things they, they hear. Uh, people are going to go on many postgraduate courses when they come out of school. So they need to uh, um, not, I'm not going to say not believe everybody what they say, but, you know, have a healthy uh, a cynicism and uh, check it out themselves. And uh, I know when I went on my first uh, McKenzie course back in the UK, I, I came back from that and because uh, they'd said that there was, you know, a good degree of support in the McKenzie system. This was... Uh, 30 years ago, and I came back and, and there wasn't really much support at all. So I, was, I remember doing a presentation where I was really critical of the course I, I went on. And uh, so, I, you know, I would encourage people to, to, to do that. I mean, you know, there's a point where you have, to, um, you have to accept that not any approach, you know, has a great wealth of evidence supporting it. Um, and when you look in the literature, much, much, comes out you know on a fairly equal equal footing but there are certainly some things out there which don't you know have have less support people should be sort of moving away from and i think awareness of that through reading the literature and uh, and and um being really thoughtful about clinical practices uh, is important yes and final question, what personal qualities or abilities are important to become a successful professional? Oh, um, yeah, I think the first thing is really you need to care about your patients. Um, and I think everything will, will follow from that. If you really care deeply about your patients and uh, um, understanding their perspective and their goals and their expectations um, and trying to do your best for them, then all the other stuff should follow because, of course, you know, if you want to do your best with a patient, then, you know, you want to make sure that your approach is kind of in line with uh, what, you know, what, what the, the evidence sort of tells us. You, may, you need to make sure that, the, you know, the patient is, is involved in that and engaged in, in that. Uh, so I think that's, that's probably the most important thing. I mean, along with that becomes a sort of, I, I, I think there should be a sort of humility, uh, which means that, um, you know, you're not thinking yourself as a as a great, um, you know, therapist that kind of knows it all, and uh, you're open to, uh, you know, to change and and to develop and, and learn. And I think that's that's really really important. But again, that comes back. You're doing all those things uh, not for your you know credibility or your status. You're doing that so you can provide better care for your patients. But I think that's, I mean, my assumption would be that that's why most, many people come into, you know, to become conservative care clinicians, uh, physios and chiropractors, because they want to help people. And, uh, I, you know, if you come in for the money, then you're probably going to be disappointed anyway. But uh, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's the final goal. Find a ways to improve the care. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's be the focus. Yes, absolutely. Richard, if people want to learn more about you, your work, or even contact you, how they can find you? More about my work. I mean, all, all the uh, studies I've been involved in um, are, will be sort of published on the uh, McKinsey Institute sort of reference list. Um, and, I mean, there are, there are many more people out there that have published much much better studies than I have. And so that's a great resource for, um, for the McKenzie material generally. Um, 
And so uh, they can contact me. My contact is on the McKinsey Institute uh, Canada and McKinsey Institute International website. Uh, so people can contact me if, if, if they like. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, through, I mean, really, uh, I'm just one of the, um, you know, instructors we have, you know, nearly hundreds internationally. So I'd encourage people to, um, be engaged with their own branch, uh, wherever they are, and uh, try to uh, you know, see where courses are coming up. If they've gone through the courses, then uh, certainly you know it's it, it's great to um, keep in contact with uh, other faculty and get to know uh, other people practicing MDT. Uh, so. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all your knowledge with us and all your effort that you put on your, your work, your papers, your research. So thank you so much for what you do for our profession. And I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Well, thanks very much for, for asking me and uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you, so thank you. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.